John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed entry 548.mt1344, certificate number 52348. The Great Diamond Hoax. Oh, come to the place where they struck it rich. Come where the treasure lies hid. Where your hat full of mud is a five pound note, and a clod on your heel is a quid. Uh, hold, hold up your hands. Let me see your hands. Uh oh. I don't know. What's this going to reveal? Uh, well, it reveals that the only jewelry you have is your wedding ring. I thought you were doing long-distance palmistry. Long-distance palmistry. I can see this, the Venusian signs in your, in your uh, hand At chemistry. this distance, pretty much all you can do is, ah, you have two hands. Very interesting. You no, have not lost a hand in a grain thresher incident. I see that you still have a very clear green stamp on your wrist from your <laughs> vaccination proof at the Mariners game we went to yesterday. That's true. So I have, apparently have not... Uh, you haven't taken a shower. I haven't showered since last night at 10. But you don't, uh, you are, you're not wearing any kind of necklace. I have never worn jewelry of any kind. I'm trying to think if there's any exception to that. In the, in the 90s, were you ever inspired to, to get a, a single hoop earring? Uh, I did have the two things on my, um, on my knuckles that's like, that say like love and hate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Eat poop. Except, yeah. <laughs> Mine said, Paul Anka. <laughs> so what, what are the worst two four-letter words to get on your fists? There's got to be something worse Paul than Paul Anka. You know, someone's going to get that. Now that you've said it, some futureling is going to get Paul Anka on there. Meat and fish. That's what I used oh, to do. meat and fish. Let me tell you the story of left hand, right hand, John. Uh, Pay me. <laughs> no, I never have. Did you have a big Mr. T gold chains or? Uh, no, I'm, you know, my, uh, we wore puka shell necklaces in the seventies right. because we w- went to Hawaii all the time. And then my sister bought me a puka shell necklace at some point in the early nineties. And I wore it, even though it was, you know, like totally over- unfashionable, yeah. really uncool, but I wore it just because you can't tell me what to do. And for a long time, I mean, I was, and even now people that knew me then will still make mocking reference to my. Mid nineties puka shell necklace. Puka years. It's puka guy and the club. But when I first uh, in the eighties, when I first was um, like vagabond traveling or whatever, I was on a train in Italy and talking to somebody I I met on the train, and he was wearing one of those three ring, um, like gold 
it's a set of three rings that are that are uh, woven in such a way that in order to get them on or off, you kind of have to roll them. There, it's a complex kind of yeah. almost. Uh, you have to solve a Rubik's cube to take off your jewelry. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a Mobius strip almost of three gold rings, and they were each a different color of gold: white gold, yellow gold, and red gold. Okay. Uh, and it was described as a friendship ring or some kind of, some kind of classic Italian, you know, the gold smiths of Florence. And they, I, they wear more jewelry than us, the Italian men. They do. And I, and I really admired it. It was, you know, I was an unsophisticated rube from Alaska and I thought, wow, what a sophisticated piece of jewelry. Um, but I, of course I couldn't afford any gold. So you stole it. I didn't steal. You cut off the guy's finger and jumped out the window of a moving train. I was against stealing, but I did find in one of those like street fair bazaars that are so popular in Europe, I found a silver one that some crafty Turkish hippie had had uh, forged out of silver wire. But of similar design. Yep. Uh, that would roll on and off. And I wore that for a long time. Uh, but I always wanted to wear jewelry. I aspired to it even though whenever I put any piece of jewelry on my body, it like burned like uh, like <laughs> holy water. Like, ah, get it off me. Like it, you felt like it wasn't your look or literally you have some kind of silver sensitivity. No, I just didn't want, I just didn't want things on me. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. I don't even like wearing sunglasses. I don't understand how people wear eyewear. Yeah, I can't carry a briefcase. Like I just want to be unencumbered. But I, but I kept trying. Like my mom found a ring that belonged to my great grandfather in a safe deposit box. She gave it to me. I wore it for a while, but it was just, it was always in the way. It just felt like it was constantly clacking on things. And so my, my aspiration to wear something, uh, some kind of adornment, like even now I, I feel like I should have a wristwatch. I do wear a watch. That's true. Oh, you have a Mickey Mouse watch. Yeah. It's just, I've had it since high school or, you know, one like it in varying parts. And it iterations. can't possibly be the same watch you had in high school. As I think I have said on the show, I left the original one in a screening of Courage Under Fire at the theater in Linwood that is now a Coles. Why did you take it off? Uh, the band had broken and it had become a pocket watch because until I replaced the strap. And it slid out of your pocket. It slid out of my pocket. Yeah. Still there somewhere. It's somewhere in the foundation of that Coles. <laughs> As you spend your Coles bucks there, think about my broken Mickey Mouse crystal somewhere under your feet. But I think one of the things is, uh, as men, um, there's no way, you know, jewelry is a way of expressing not just wealth, but also sophistication, culture, right? I mean, to have... Why else would you wear a watch today now yeah. that you have a... Now that you have time everywhere. Just to say, like, I can... I am a man of taste. That's right. I, I can... my tasteful dial... I can tell a story about this jewelry, and that's been true forever, right? I mean, your story of an engagement, of a wedding ring, right? Or or a beautiful necklace from uh, Turkmenistan, or or whatever. There's always there should be traditionally a story associated with your. Here's jewelry. who got it for me for what occasion. Here's where I on which of my travels I bought it. Here's what this gems. That's why there's gemstones, right? Like we have a need to ascribe symbolic value, including including, you know, personal birthday ast astrological type stuff or, or even, um, intangible qualities like courage or faith or whatever. Right. To shiny rocks. Right. The sapphires. shiny, the shiniest rocks. What does, what do sapphires communicate to you? I have no idea. It communicates you can afford a sapphire. I guess, but is a sapphire it's, it, it's, expensive? 
They are. They're and it's, it, it's a very bold, deep blue color. So aesthetically, it, there's, there's you know, confidence that I'm going to wear something very, very richly navy blue in my ears. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't know if, if the, I'm sure there's a hundred mystical traditions of, of the powers of the, the sapphire that I don't know about. You know, as I sit here, I'm wondering, I can't wear a puka shell necklace anymore, but maybe I should go all the way back and wear a shark's tooth necklace. That was my, that was my son's first Hawaii souvenir as a kid. He was so excited to get a shark's tooth necklace. You remember when those were fairly commonplace or is that, is that a difference in our ages that would be significant enough that you don't remember shark tooth necklaces as a. I mean, you you grew up here where everybody came back from Hawaii on vacation. That's right, probably an part of it. Yeah, we, we, we right. went to Hawaii as a people. Yeah. But also it felt like a kind of surfer thing or a, sure. you know. Jaw, post-Jaws. Post-Jaws. I mean, really the thing is sharks are cool. And yeah, I, yeah. I've, in some metaphorical way, I've defeated one by, by putting its greatest <laughs> weapon on me. That's why I wear a shark penis ne- uh, necklace. <laughs> Your Usyk? <laughs> yep. That's why you're always twirling that Usyk baton. Just like... Check it out. Yeah, that's right. I'm banging it on the table, banging it like a gavel. Walrus, clop, clop, <laughs> penis, clop, clop. Why were you chanting that at the game last night? That was so weird. I know. Everybody else was cheering for the for the relief pitcher, but I was saying walrus penis. We're going to have to ask you to leave, sir. We, we talked about this at the last homestand. Uh, one of the reasons that diamonds are uh, traditionally so valuable um, is that until very recently, I mean, in the last couple hundred years... Diamonds were really only um, widely mined. I mean, the the only source of diamonds was India. India is where all the crown jewels come from. The right. Hope Diamond. They were all discovered in I- India, and so they they were genuinely scarce um, because India Indi- Indian diamond mines. Um, aren't, you know, they don't have diamonds just lying around on the ground. I mean, they really have to, it's labor intensive and they're uncommon even in India. It would be a nice gesture to give back the crown jewels. Don't you agree? Yeah. Like repatriate them. The like Windsor the Elgin Marlins. The Windsor should be like, Hey, Here. listen, none of these are from Sussex. Yeah. Take the, uh, take this back. I bought a, a big cocktail, uh, like a, a coffee table book, uh, about the crown jewels. I'm not talking about really. My are you my grandma? <laughs> this is are the, you my aunt Edna? I was going through a phase where I was buying big coffee table books for my daughter because about I wanted Princess Diana's wedding. Well, I wanted to dazzle her with like King Tut's gold, right, and, right. you know, to get her interested because you we talk sure. about this all the time. We used to that's the era of us. Yeah, everything we learned time our, life books our, and National Geographic. Exactly, and, yeah. our love of knowledge came from opening these giant big books. color pictures, and that's why kids are, they're, they're on their little screens, and that's why they have little thoughts, not like our big expensive ones. <laughs> that's right. They can't read the liner notes of the Moody Blues records anymore, <laughs> and so they don't understand uh, the days of future past. Uh, so I bought this, and and this book on the, on the crown jewels. I I guess I never realized this, but they they store the crowns in the Tower of London, right? But without their jewels in them, because they switch the jewels around. Oh yeah. So she's got the one crown she wears, and it's got the jewels, and then put in my September pearls. Yeah. Then she switches to a different crown, and it's the same jewels. So very disappointingly to me, all the pictures in this book are of crowns with. Big holes where the jewels go, and I was like, "This is, couldn't you switch the jewels around you to make this put book? In paste ones for for display purposes between." I've been, you know, I've been there, and I think maybe there were substitute jewels on them, weren't there? Yeah, I, I, I I've never actually been to the Tower of London because I was always afraid they would keep me. 
If the Ravens fly away, that's a sign. That do not let John leave <laughs> the tower. Wait a minute. It's very clever to avoid kind of crowding, like the Mona Lisa style crowding you would expect in front of the crown jewels. They just have you on a moving sidewalk. Oh, really? So, so you just stand there and you kind of zip by the jewels and there they go. So why wouldn't they have done that to make this coffee table? Very fr- And, you know, and, and of course what it did is instill in my daughter a, a, a profound distrust of learning. She opened this book and she was like, this is garbage. Crown jewels have no jewels. Yeah. I was like, no, look at the King Tut book in that case. I think, you know, if they gave all the diamonds and pearls back to wherever in South Asia they got them, they would just have to, they would have to limit the queen's headwear to native born jewels that you could mine in the UK. Like coal? Chalk and coal. <laughs> I'm, sure. I'm the queen of chalk and coal. <laughs> <laughs> Refuse. Maybe there's barrel and onyx in the UK. I have no idea. Well, no, you'd, you'd find all the, you know, all the buried uh, Norse gold, uh, all the all the crumpled up You'd have to crowns. repatriate that too. <laughs> you'd be left with just ammonite skeletons that Mary Anning found. Yeah, I guess that's right. Well, so, so jewels were... Uh, were were valuable not just because they're beautiful, but because they're rare. And then, of course, is gold. there a test case for like something really ugly but rare, like to see if people will collect hmm. ambergris? I, guess. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the songs of the long winters haven't yet uh, become incredibly valuable. There's only only like what three records in an EP yeah, or I something. Should, I should turn them into non fungible tokens, although <laughs> that might have that moment might have passed. Uh, well, that's that's interesting, and I. I uh, they do have to be beautiful, right? Can you think of a thing that that has no? Well, I think maybe um, rare earths, for instance. Now they're not; they've never been beautiful, but because they're useful. Yeah, nobody would collect them just because you know there's not that much vanadium. I, I keep a vial around my neck. Do you? No, but the, the people only want them now because you can make cell phones out of them, right? Right. Right. What is what is the most va- what is the the rarest element that appears in the earth? That has no utility <laughs> and nobody, and we should start collecting it. Exactly. Just because of its scarcity. Nobody wants uh, germanium. Actually, people probably do want germanium. Yeah, they make uh, your useless little watch out of them. I don't know. But it's, uh, but that's interesting because the, the whole idea of money is, th- is scarcity. It's scarce, but it's not. It's, but know, it has no value. It's not beautiful. So why don't we, uh, although the Dutch Gilder used to be a very beautiful money. Why don't you and I corner the market on super scarce but useless uh, elements? All right. Well, we should get you know this show won't you know, air for a couple of months, so we have a chance to get ahead of the. This curve. Does, were we weren't we talking about this on the show? Like this does happen in certain collectible fields where even if a even if a player is not that great. Oh, I think we were maybe talking about Button Gwinnett's autograph. It's one of the oh, yeah. rarest because people want a complete set of um, declaration signers. And Button Gwinnett just died young, so there's hardly any documents with his name on them. He accomplished nothing. He's like the le- the least accomplished of the founding fathers. But he was on the Constitution, and it's the most a declaration. The declaration, and it's the most expensive of the signatures, just because of oh. pure scarcity. And that happens for baseball cards too. I think, you know, Honus Wagner is no Babe Ruth. He's great, but you know, he just happened to have a very small run of one of his cards. I mean, it's one of the fundamental. It's a defining feature of stamp collecting and coin collecting. The one that's yes. a misprint, the one that has a here's a, this th- weird three cent whatever. Yeah, that's the that's it's not the pretty, one. but there's only six of them. The thing about gems, diamonds, garnets, rubies, sapphires, they are also beautiful, or at least beautiful mm. when they've been worked. Um, oh, right, we we uh, we recently, no, not recently, we did an episode of the Omnibus on uh, uh, what was that? What's that? 
made-up gem that they sell on cruise ships. Oh, right, uh, tanzanite. Yeah, tanzanite, right. Um, so that's an attempt to to gin up some scarcity where pr- presumably none exists. If you're listening to these in alphabetical order, it's coming up, and it's a good one. <laughs> um, and and of course the uh, you know the 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 search for gold in the Americas really propelled the Spanish conquest of of all of the Americas and and was the the um, motivating factor in. The, the tremendous decimation and uh, brutalization of the indigenous peoples of here. All the peoples. Even and, the Jamestown colonists were like, yeah, we could farm and worship our God, but also we just want to start digging because yeah, like, where are the gold at? Or if not dig, then capture the people that already found the yeah, gold. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, hey, where's your gold? Throttle them. Where's your gold cities, man? But in the United States, in the, in the 19th century sort of westward movement, um, Minerals were a big part of what motivated that first wave of of uh, beaver hat wearing kooks to go out into the wilderness and and uh, and put their pick in the ground. And uh, you know, most famously, in eighteen forty eight, gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in in San Francisco. And if you think about eighteen forty eight, or outside of San Francisco, if you if you think about eighteen forty eight, we're pre Civil War. Uh, California is mostly a you know, just until just recently, a Mexican, a Mexican desert province. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know a funny thing, by the way, about the discovery of gold is, do you know how most people heard about it? How it was in the state of the union address. It was like the only time any, any actual good news was delivered in the state of the union address. <laughs> James K. Polk is like, I've got a surprise for you guys. Like today it would be like, we must use the uh, politics of freedom to bring freedom to politics. And everybody stands up, you know? Right. But back then he was like, guess what? There's gold in California. There's gold in California. He drops the mic. And that, um, you know, that precipitated a, a, a lot of prospecting and a lot of kind of crazy claims about the mineral, um, uh, the sort of uh, like vast treasures that were in the West. The wealth of the West. And a lot of this was, was already playing on stories of, uh, you know, Montezuma's gold, and when the you know yeah. when the Spanish came into Mexico City, uh, Tenochtitlan or whatever it was, um, like the Aztecs took all their treasure and ran up into Chihuahua or you know buried it in the Grand Canyon Sonora or something. Desert or yeah. something yeah. And um, and then also like the the Davy Crockett's would kind of come back and talk about oh the you know the the hills are all full of just rubies lying around and it was you know kind of the myth the the mythologizing tendency of of it's hard to imagine explorers like i've come back from a trip and maybe i've been like man that was just such an amazing meal or you know maybe i have you ever been to eugene maybe oregon hyperbolize a little really incredible the just the scene down there and then <laughs> and then people go down there like this isn't an incredible scene in eugene but i've never like invented piles of rubies I, I maybe I said, yeah, that museum's really good when actually it was only pretty good. But I don't understand the tendency to come home and be like, yeah, there's piles of rubies in, in Ohio. I think some of it is, you know, the first time anybody walked through Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon, it's it's not that big of a leap to say, right. you know, what those probably are is diamonds and rubies and Montezuma's gold. The West is colorful, but it's all oxides. It's all just rust, but you don't want to tell people back home. The so, West is rusting. And all of this, you know, this this was 
I don't think that the West would have been settled quite as quickly and as dynamically as it was if it was just the promise of farmland. You know, why would you take people, a, a lot of those people already had farmland? Yeah. Why would you abandon everything and take a wagon train across the Oregon trail and end up eating your cousins? An, uh, an acre in the hand is, is worth two in the bush. Exactly. All these people already were pretty well set up in Pennsylvania or someplace. I assume some of it came from people who could profit on by spreading the idea that there were rubies in the West. Right? That's the, that's the 100% the, um, Real the group of shysters. people that really end up making money is the people that get to San Francisco time to, to, uh, establish a business selling pickaxes and gold pans. Mm. Um, it's big pickaxe, but also bankers. And I mean, everyone follows, uh, the shippers. I mean, San Francisco by 1850 was a city of 150,000 people where it had been a, or 18, yeah. That's funny to imagine. It's a big European sized city with nothing around it in like in a 2000 mile radius, right? Yeah. And, and, and Denver is the closest thing. Just lucky, I guess, that that natural harbor was the, the nearest thing to, um, to the gold, the gold mines, right? It could have and, and been pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. Yeah. Go down the Sacramento River and there you are. It's not just a gold rush. It's a gold rush with a really good port. And it, was only 10 years later that the Comstock Lode, which was the huge mountain of silver in uh, in Nevada, was discovered, 1859. So no port, but but still. Well, yeah, you can get it. You, you use the same port. Yeah, you get it out. Well, you get it out by by taking it to the Salt Lake or the uh, the Las Vegas airport and flying it out of there. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> Play the slots for a few minutes until your plane uh, boards. And all of that, Comstock Lode especially, made... Uh, made fortunes for the bankers that were, by that point in time in San Francisco, funding the, um, you know, f- like issuing stock. And this was a big part of all the 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 mining stuff that came after that. Placer, the you know the initial guys that that made money, gold panning. Corporations were formed, and then stocks were sold back east. Yeah. In. Uh, in these mines. And if you bought That's what stock, I want. Yeah. I, I want to get rich on a gold rush, but I don't want to go with, no. I don't want to buy a burrow. No, you buy stock in it. Yeah. Uh, you buy stock in the mulberry trees, right? This is what drives the, the stock market. And, and, and a lot of the, a lot of the big players of the 19th century, uh, were also diver- diversifying into the, the sort of gold rushes of the West. Um, a man by the name of William Chapman Ralston, formed the bank of California, uh, and, you know, and made a bunch of money on the Comstock. Uh, and so the, so the, the financial institutions and the, 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 uh, the new aristocracy of California all really came initially from these, the mineral riches. But what that did was inspire a lot of, uh, a lot of wild speculating sure. and crazy gold rushes to places where it turned out there really wasn't anything. Cause a lot of these are going to be just a hundred thousand to one return on your money. If, if any one of them pans out, so you will take wild risks. Right. Right. And, and you've got the, you've got the panners that are rushing out there on, on the, um, you know, on their, on their, their mule or whatever, but you've also got bankers and, mid-level speculators, business people that don't want to leave the Castro, but do want to try and get rich on it. And a couple of things uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of the American Civil War, 
there were a couple of things that really kind of heightened the intensity of this. And one of them was the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869. So now if you were back East and, and you were a Civil War vet that didn't, you know, that didn't have much going on. You didn't uh, have to go by way of Chile. Right. And your, you know, your wife stopped writing you those, those elegant letters that were accompanied by, by violin music. And you realized, oh, I'm just sort of back here in Indiana, Indiana or Kentucky working my plot of land, my 40 acres and a mule if you were white. Uh, but then in 1867, in South Africa, uh, a colonist's son, a 15-year-old boy by the name of Erasmus Jacobs, um, walking along the their sort of weather-beaten farm, found lying on the ground, a, a kind of translucent rock that turned out to be a diamond. Mm. And all of a sudden, up until that point, there really were only two places you could get diamonds. There was India, which was uh, the diamond mined back to antiquity. And the Shane Company. And the Shane Company, where you have a friend in the diamond That's business. That's what you want. You don't just want a diamond. You want a friend yeah. in thank, the diamond business. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you, uh, thank the Shane Diamond Company for uh, for sponsoring this episode of Omnibus. No, where do they have them besides India? The Portuguese uh, discovered diamonds in Brazil. Oh, interesting. In the 18th century as a part of, you know, the overwhelming mineral wealth of Brazil, gold. And, I, you know, now Brazil is the number one iron exporter in the world. But there isn't a, there isn't a jewel or mineral that you don't find somewhere in Brazil. And diamonds were a component of that, but a smaller one. Uh, and it was only really noteworthy because it was the only other place but India that diamonds had been revealed. India was probably bummed. Ah, Brazil. Oh, Brazil. But a lot harder to get them out of Brazil than it was out of India. Sure. And at this point, colonial India. Yeah, especially if you're not Portugal. But all of a sudden in colonial South Africa, um, diamonds were discovered and then it was realized that there were diamonds everywhere in South Africa. It turned out South Africa was just a big diamond. People had just been walking on what they thought was gravel for years. That's right. And, and in the space of only a few years, South Africa produced more diamonds than had been mined in India huh. for 2000 years. This is what leads to the English-Dutch uh, tension that produces the Boer Wars in a, in a previous entry. That's right. Um, and and honestly, we see it now um, that the the profusion of diamonds in South Africa has, um, has, not forced, but the De Beers Company has colluded with the global diamond industry to artificially inflate the diamond. They've got so um, many South African diamonds that they're holding them back. Yeah, they have to choke the market. And that's where we got the idea of a diamond engagement ring. I mean, we, and we've talked about this on episodes before, too, that the whole thing is there are so many diamonds, you know, it's kind of a sham. It had never occurred to me that the De Beers slogan, a diamond is forever, was actually just an incitement to not wear your grandma's diamond. If a diamond is forever, you need to buy a new ring for your new marriage, not use a family heirloom. Oh, interesting. And that's what, that's what sells more diamonds. Otherwise, De Beers doesn't sell a new diamond. You'll just use grandma's. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's also kind of a weird slogan because it, it, the opposite is also true. It kind of chokes off demand. Like all you have to do is buy one. It's forever. They're not, <laughs> you know, they're not consumable. They don't wear out. Uh, yeah. You're not going to join the diamond of the month club. Right. But the, 
the wonderful thing about diamonds is that they do in South Africa, they did just sort of appear on the ground. You know, diamonds were just sort of it's a lazy could, man's dream. Yeah, you could nobody just had pick to buy up. a pickaxe from big pickaxe. Right, you didn't have to dig a tr- uh, uh, you you could dig a trench instead of dig a shaft. Yeah, um, and so diamonds were still very scarce, and this um, and so they had this value that was associated with princes and kings and queens. And um, and so the discovery of diamonds in South Africa fueled in the United States uh, uh, contributed to the idea that that wealth was just waiting there for you if you were one of the lucky few to stumble upon these riches. And most of the you know, most of the desert Southwest and the mountain states uh, were only just being surveyed at this time. So there still was, uh, there still was a tr- tremendous amount of the land in in this uh, this middle third of America that v- very few people had surveyed or even stood foot on, because even Native Americans would walk through the this you know the southwest corner of Wyoming and go well. Nothing really here, not even water, but best keep moving. But if you're a land speculator, you can say, well, clearly this is not farmland, but what if there's mineral rights? Yeah, what if something else is here? Well, so in 1871, uh, San Francisco is a bustling metropolis, and, um, and there's a lot of silver and gold, silver and gold coming through the town. And uh, a man by the name of Philip Arnold, who had been a gold prospector and he'd fought in the Mexican War, and he was a you know he was a forty year old guy who had been around. He was a Kentuckian who was now living in San Francisco and working as a bookkeeper at um, a company called the Diamond Drill Company, and they were a company that used industrial diamonds. Um, again, sort of now. Coming from South Africa, these diamonds that didn't have any mineral or didn't have any gem qualities, but Could they still were be used in machining. Machining and these drills were used in mining. Ah. Um, he was a bookkeeper at this company, and he took an uh, took a, an interest in industrial diamonds. It's sort of a lot of this story is, came from reporting after the fact. A lot of people were interviewed. And there was, um, you know, people, people that were part of the story recognized that, that Philip Arnold coming, it was not a coincidence that he worked as a bookkeeper at the diamond drill company because he, you know, he had contact with these industrial diamonds. Would you say he was like their friend in the industrial diamond industry? He was the bookkeeper in the industrial diamond industry. So he worked for a friend in the, in the industrial diamond industry. Yeah. Those guys are not your friend. They're just in a cubicle. But Philip, you know, uh, Philip Arnold wasn't, um, you know, he's not a guy that was, uh, was a scam artist. He was, he was somebody working in a, in a respectable job in an office. Got a good job. But, uh, one day he and his cousin, John Slack, um. Sounds like a bad influence. I know. And John it's, Slack. And John Slack en- ends up actually. Uh, the two of them do a little bit of a good cop, bad cop, except they do a, they have a, they have a, a vibe where it's like energetic minor, uh, kind of 
like lazy slovenly miner. Which one is is Slack the slacker? Slack is the slacker. That's perfect. And uh, and Arnold is the is the jazz odyssey. Good miner. They show up in the office of a of a San Francisco kind of like a hu- hustling business guy, not a not a high ranking guy, but a but a connected businessman by the name of George Roberts. And they are they present themselves as kind of dusty and weather beaten, and they have a little. Which is not true. Uh, well, uh, do you have to? As, what do you have to do to an accountant to make him look weather beaten? I mean, you 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 take him out and you put him in the weather, and then you you take some dust and throw it on your head. As soon as and, tax season's over, put your accountant outdoors. I mean, a forty year old in eighteen seventy uh, was a lot more yeah. weather beaten than a forty year old now. Now you know you're. 40, whatever. I just wonder if they had to put, you have to pull some teeth out of an accountant to make him plausible as a prospector. I think in 1870, you know, people were, were barely clinging to their teeth, although it was before widespread sugar consumption. So maybe everybody was super healthy and strong, but it doesn't take much. I think being, being clean and fancy was the, was the rarity then. Yes. Nobody would know. You could have the teeth of Karen and Richard Carpenter, but nobody would. Nobody would know because they couldn't get too close to you because of the smell. Because of the smell. They show up in the office of George Roberts kind of on a weekend. And uh, they've, got this, they've got this leather poke, a little, a little sack. And they say, hey, uh, we need your help. Uh, we've got this valuable little bag. Uh, the stuff in here is very valuable. We're not, we can't tell you what it is. Uh, but the Bank of California is closed. Because it's Memorial Day or whatever. Um, can we keep it with you? We know you're a you know upstanding businessman and you've got a safe in your office. Can we keep this valuable little bag with you? And George Roberts says, you know, you got to tell me what's in it, what's going on here. And they're like, no, 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 we can't. But then gradually he gets it out of them. That's good. Well, there's you know we found some we found some precious stones. We found some. Some diamonds. They give him a little peek. It's a bag full of uncut, you know, raw diamonds. And they swear him to secrecy. This is good. They make him do the work. Yeah. This is like straight out of the sting. And so uh, George Roberts, of course, immediately goes at the, at the first opportunity to William Ralston, founder of the Bank of California and um, industrial financier who had uh, profited from the um, from the Comstock load, but it also sort of financed the transcontinental railroad when they, when they petered out, ran out of money kind of in the, in the, uh, Utah area, if you recall. Well, that's funny. They needed outside investors at the last minute. Yeah. And George, and, and William Ralston was, you know, was a, uh, he was a Titan of the, of the West. He built the palace hotel in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He was a big player. And so Roberts goes to him and says, hey, look, you're not going to believe this, but these two hayseeds from Kentucky just showed up with this bag of diamonds and you got to check it out. And so there's a, you know, an, an immediate kind of convening of a few local hotshots, local um, business people, and they, um, they have a meeting with Arnold and Slack and Arnold and Slack say, well, you know, we're not going to tell you where we found these diamonds, but there are lots more where this came, where these came from. And they spill out their bag and the, uh, you know, the assembled group is absolutely dazzled. It's this 
huge pile of uncut stones mixed in with garnets and your your usual garnets and rubies and sapphires. Well, that doesn't seem plausible. Well, I, I would have stuck to one kind of gem. But these gems are just you know they're what what uh, what Arnold and Slack are presenting is this real reluctance um, to reveal yeah. where they found these you know this this sort of desert acreage the where trove. yeah the the gems are just lying out on the ground and so so Ralston in collusion with Roberts and some of his other local cronies immediately set about trying to form a company that's going to um capitalize on these raw stones right it's not just that they're going to go mine them but that they're going to sell stock in a corporation and, um, you know, and end up selling shares to, to people back East. I mean, this is the way that a banker can profit from the, the discovery. Yes. This is some early Bain capital kind of a thing. Yeah. They're not just going to, I don't want to mine the gems. I want to right trick 50,000 people in Boston and Philadelphia into investing in these gems. Well, and I don't want to buy them from Arnold and sell them for 10% more yes, either, right? Yeah. And it isn't they're not thinking of it as a scam. They're thinking of this as no, the well, this, this is the way this is how their business, business works now. Right. You don't actually have to do anything. But they want to, you know, they want to make sure that that this is all real. Uh and so Arnold and Slack go back out and um do they know Arnold works at a diamond drill bit company? Uh, you know, Arnold. And, I wouldn't lead with that if I were them. Arnold and Slack are presenting themselves as longstanding prospectors that okay. were here in in forty nine and had, you know, had had been consistently kind of exploring the West, looking for the next big Comstock load, and stumbled on this. And they didn't, you know, they didn't want anybody to know. But they headed back out on another. Uh, adventure, and this is happening in a time when, y- in order to do this, you would take a train, be gone for a month or two, and they showed back up with a with another bag, and this one was a big old bag, and they they said, you know, they had mined two of these bags. One of them had been lost. Uh, off of their mule when they were crossing a stream, but they had the one bag as proof and it had 60 pounds of uncut diamonds and other gems. And they spilled it out on the table in front of this oh boy. little, uh, group of bankers and they, you know, lost their minds. It looked like a million dollars in gems at a time when, I mean, I don't know what the value of a dollar in, in 1870 was, but, uh, it was a lot more than it is now. Their eyes turned to dollar signs. Their eyes turned to dollar signs. But they were not rubes, Ken. They were not uh, complete uh, complete goobers. They've got due diligence to, to do. They do. And so they hired a, uh, a mining engineer who had a, a great reputation in California and had been part of uh, all of this mineral exploration by the name of Henry Jannon. And they brought him in to... Uh, to give them an, you know, to survey this pile of stones and to give them an estimate or, you know, appraise them. And Janin was very excited by what he saw and, um, and gave, you know, a very like inflated appraisal of, of what the stones were worth. At this point, uh, the group 
now had expanded and had included some Eastern bankers, um, or I'm sorry, not just Eastern bankers, but Eastern personages of, of high stature, including Horace Greeley, the publisher of the New York Tribune and George McClellan. Oh yeah. What happened to him after the war? I have no idea. (laughs) Well, he ended up being the governor of New Jersey. Ah. You know, McClellan was among civil war buff circles and I think historians in general, McClellan is widely regarded as a terrible general. Um, just, be, just because he was bad at being a general. That's the only reason. He was bad at being him. a general. He was very timid. He refused to follow Lee's army and crush them. Lincoln sat on his big high Lincoln chair, or I guess it was probably a low Lincoln chair. It was made of Lincoln logs. And Lincoln was like, go get him. Come on. You're the general. Go get him. And McClellan was like, I don't know. It's cloudy today. I just feel like we need to wait. You know, the men didn't really get a good night's sleep last night. And, and he, I think in hindsight, it seems like there were, he had a couple chances at ending the Civil War in 1861 or 1862. He, yeah, it seems it seems that if he had exploited his advantage, at least, uh, I mean, history might have, um, we might talk about the Civil War as a suppressed rebellion that lasted all of a matter of months. And Grant would not be on the money. That's right. That's right. We Grant wouldn't be on the 500, uh, like, uh, space dollars. And he never would have bill. been president. McClellan might have been president. McClellan, I think, ran for president. He did. And the there Democrats were, ran him in 64. Yeah, and there were quite a few, some some of the other uh, members of the story, actually, um, another another general by the name of Ben Butler, who also, I think, ran for president. He fi- figures in the story in a little bit. Um, but so this, uh, and, and, you know, Baron von Rothschild, like they went back east and they put together a real august group of investors. And at this point, they required of Arnold and Stack that they um, that they go out and show them where the the fields are because they're ready. They're selling. You know, they're ready to sell stock. They're ready to start actually exploiting this mine. Um, so Slack kind of wants his money up front, and he arranges with them that. They're going to pay him a hundred thousand dollars for his share in the in the discovery. He doesn't want to be part of the corporation. He doesn't want to end up being like a like a, a guy running the mine. He wants a hundred grand. He wants fifty grand up front, and he wants fifty grand after the you know after the mine starts to be exploited. And so, you know, based on this big bag of of stones and based on the story. They give Slack fifty thousand bucks for you know for half of his share, and Slack and Arnold immediately f- take the trip across the country and across the ocean to the United Kingdom, where they spend four thousand dollars of their fifty thousand dollars in wealth on as many low grade uncut garbage diamonds from South Africa as they can lay their hands on. They find a diamond dealer by the name of Leopold Keller and they say, Hey, we need all these diamonds, these, you know, these big piles of diamonds. And Keller's like, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. You know, he's an innocent party, but sells them a bunch of, of, um, Oh, I'm sorry. They actually buy $20,000 worth of 
garbage diamond. It's half of their half of their proceeds. Half so of far. their initial stake, and 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 the four thousand dollar figure or the four thousand figure is actually the number of diamonds they buy from from Keller, and they come back and um, kind of disappear into the wilderness. So wait, so they've already run through their drill bit diamonds, right? Like yeah. what? Yeah. But where did they get the other stuff, the garnets and whatever? That was just from the same source, I guess? He, uh, he had a line on other kinds of industrial... No, the sense is that as they explored the West, you know, when they encountered Native American tribes, um, you know, the tribes also, you know, they had uncut rubies and diamonds that they... Or I'm not, not diamonds, but uncut garnets uh, that, that they were picking up kind of just generally... I mean, these stones are scattered throughout the West, not, uh-huh. not in mineable quantities, but you know, they were acquiring these stones wherever they could get them cheap. And, um, you know, they disappeared for a while and then came back to San Francisco and said, all right, we'll lead an expedition. Uh, Janin, the, the mineralogist can come. Um, and at, at, uh, earlier on in the story, George Roberts had enlisted in his partnership a man by the name of Asbury Harpending, who was an Englishman. Really? Yeah. As, uh, who was a fake Englishman? He was a real Englishman that had, you know, that was another one of these, not exactly shady businessmen, but colorful businessmen who was involved in a lot of uh, speculation and uh, exciting sort of uh, contemporary Western business wheeling and dealing. And Harpending became a, a major figure in the story. He was somebody who his Britishness and his sophistication really sold the, uh, and this, and he's working on behalf of Roberts or, you know, he and Roberts are in partnership. So they are not a part of a scam. Like they, they be- don't know where the gems are coming. From. They don't know where the gems are coming from. They believe in the, in Arnold and Slack because Arnold and Slack present themselves as, uh, rustic and, um, you know, kind of leather fringe Western explorers. Slack is really reticent. Uh, Arnold is taciturn. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty convincing story. And Harpending is, is one of the, the people that's kind of bridging this story to the East, um, to the Eastern bankers, but Harpending and Janin and a little party of people head out with, Arnold and Slack, they take a train to St. Louis and then they take a, a spur train back, uh, up into Wyoming and they get out, they get off the train in Rollins, Wyoming, which is part of this, you know, general Wyoming territory, Wyoming, Colorado territory. And, uh, Arnold and Slack hitch up a mule train and off they go from Rollins and they intentionally wander these guys around the desert for a week. Just in circles? There was actually a, tr- you know, the, there was the next stop on the train was actually really close to uh, it would have been. their property, but they got off early and start wandering them around and kind of pretending to be lost and it's over here. No, it's over there. And they spend a week out in the desert before they... Uh, identify th- some landmarks. There's a there's a kind of conical mountain in the distance that they say, ah, there, the, you know, the, that mountain is right by. There was a, a particular cactus over here, and they find um, 
the site of their discovery and Janin and, and, uh, Harpending, uh, and their, you know, their little gang head off into this plot of land and right away start finding gems, raw diamonds and rubies and sapphires, all just sort of scattered. Um, some of them kind of protruding from the ground. Some of them, you know, kind of on the sides of ant hills, suggesting that they'd been unearthed. Did they have, were they like, Hey, wait around the corner for a second. We're going to go check and make sure this is the right place. And then they're like, you can come in now. Well, they, they had, after they bought the diamonds in the UK, they had gone out here and spread them over I this see. acre so or this acreage weeks or months before months before, and then had returned and there was nothing out here. There was no, there was no reason that anybody would have yeah. stumbled on their field. It's geocaching. And so, Oh, everybody is so excited. You know, Janin, who's a, who's a mineralogist, just as duped as everybody else scooping up the diamonds. And they all come back to, um, to San Francisco with proof positive that these, that the, that the mineral riches in this region were unsurpassed right about this time back in Washington, the, um, the mining act of 1872 had just been passed or was in the process of, of making its way through Congress up until this point. Um, the laws governing mineral extraction in the American West were ad hoc and kind of uh, sort of uh, wackadoodle. They were different everywhere you went. At one point, there was a town in California called Rough and Ready, California, yeah. that actually seceded from the Union and formed a republic um, in order to uh, in order to escape the unfair federal rules around mining. That does sound pretty rough. It was. But maybe and maybe not ready. Rough and ready still survives to this day in California. As an independent country? It's no longer an independent country. They actually, they uh, they rejoined the union. But, uh, but there was a recognition that there needed to be a federal law about it. And it was, um, it was a source of tremendous contention because there was a large faction of the people in government in the United States that believed that the mineral wealth of the American West belonged to the people. It was of and for the people. And, uh, you know, the newly reconstituted union was deeply in debt because of the war. And uh, there was a sense that the mineral resources should be exploited by the nation. And uh, that would resolve the debt crisis. Um, it was a very convincing argument but it went up against, as we see in the United States today, um, a very strong counter-argument that the West should be a land of freedom and, you know, Americans should be able to go find their fortune. And That's why Ammon Bundy's running for governor of Idaho. That's right. And, 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 the, um, and the argument that, the, that the, the scrappy Western miner was a more efficient way of exploiting the mineral wealth because they were motivated and, you know, and, and competition against foreign silver, uh, you know, they're all the, all the old tropes. Uh, I didn't realize the prospector was some kind of a 
American symbol back then. Yeah, absolutely. Like well, an astronaut or a yeah. To some, you know, to some quadrants. And mm. the the what ended up happening was the Mining Act of 1872. It wasn't even really a compromise. It was it basically um enshrined the rights of the noble miner and and really kind of prohibited the federal government from making this argument that the that the mineral wealth was a collective wealth of the United States it was it it precipitated this whole idea of the wealth of the west the timber wealth the oil discoveries as being just these miraculous uh, lucky things that happened to people that were out there looking for them and not that these were uh, unrenewable resources that I wonder if it's like a relic of uh, a, a you know bigger place of religion in public life if you think um, well of course uh, this person found gold in the river or whatever you know that God had directed them to find yeah. it. this is this is their destiny and absolutely a product of the sense that the un the the unexplored undiscovered world was somewhat limitless. Yeah. How would we ever run out of forests? You don't need to worry about that in the Rocky Mountains. There's gold in them thar hills. As part of this mining act, uh, it was enshrined that acreage in the Mountain West um, was five dollars an acre, and that. Remain. This was in the law. They didn't account for the fact that inflation. Yeah, that things would, um, that land values would increase, and that is still true to this day. Wait, really? The, Five dollars? Yeah. The 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 right to the mineral rights of land in the West can be had for five dollars an acre. That's uh, a steal. Well, yeah, we'll t- we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, or we'll talk about the the modern life in the minute. Anyway, these Eastern bankers form what's called the Golconda Mining Company, and they start issuing stock. Um, Golconda? The Golconda. Well, initially it's the, it's the San Francisco and New York mining and commercial company, but, uh, but, um, but that evolves into the Golconda Mining Company. Um, investors start getting in on this and, you know, pretty soon, They've raised six hundred and sixty thousand dollars in eighteen seventies money. Um, they hire an attorney by the name of Sam Barlow, and uh, and they get Ben Butler, as we discussed earlier, the the Civil War general, who is now a congressman, to amend the Mining Act of eighteen seventy two as it's going through Congress, because the Mining Act had specified gold and silver. And, uh, and it needed to be amended to include diamonds and gems. And Ben Butler, in exchange for 1000 shares in the, uh, in the new mining company is their man on the inside and actually successfully amends the mining act to include gems. And that was probably legal back then. I mean, it was not, even by standards at the time, it was, it was fairly unethical. Shady. I mean, it's clearly unethical. Um, they take this uh, this this group of Eastern bankers has a big has a big party, and they invite uh, Charles Tiffany of the Tiffany Company to take a look at their big bag of gems. They spread it out on the table. Tiffany has his little loop, 
and his, uh, you know, his diamond separating wand or whatever. And Tiffany declares after a brief kind of glimpse at the gems that they, these are gems of incredible quality. They're worth, um, even this little, you know, kind of load is worth $150,000, meaning that just the diamonds that they had back in San Francisco were worth a million and a half bucks. And this is just the first of many bags. And, um, you know, the room kind of goes wild. They give, they give Slack his, his other $50,000 and Slack immediately goes back to England, contacts Leopold Keller and buys another huge batch of like stock rough diamonds. Oh, more diamonds, more rough diamonds. Um, and they go back, they, they sprinkle the diamonds again, kind of in this, in this field there, you know, the, the dupage, they, they bring the, you know, they've got sacks of diamonds, they're duping everybody and slack at a certain point, um, gets another 150,000 bucks from the corporation and immediately punches out. He's like, you guys have got the, you know, you've, you've paid me for my rights and I'm splitsville and he disappears. Absolutely disappears from the scene. Is Arnold still in? Arnold is still in, but Arnold is, you know, Arnold's the fast talker. Arnold gets $300,000 worth of stock in the corporation, which he, uh, and they pay him 150,000 bucks too. He immediately sells the $300,000. That's what you got to do. Um, and so, you know, he's got a big pile of cash. And Henry Jannon also gets a thousand shares in the company. The, the mining engineer still completely believes in the story, uh-huh. but he sells his shares and makes about $30,000 in 1870 money. Um, but he is, as part of his deal, expects to be cut in to a larger, and he's getting actually getting paid as a surveyor too, but he's going to get cut in in the big picture. But Jannon is on a train coming back from, Wyoming at one point, and he bumps into a guy by the name of Samuel Emmons, who is a, a, a real geologist who's been on a giant kind of cross country surveying of the West trip, uh, called the exploration of the 40th parallel, which was headed by a man by the name of Clarence King. And he was, a one of the great kind of Western explorer types Clarence King had put together this expedition to go out and, and survey the West. And they just completed their Western survey. And Emmons just happens to bump into Jannon on the train and Jan starts boasting about this discovery. Hmm. Well, this kind of shocks and horrifies Emmons and he immediately meets up with King and says, hey, these guys claim to have discovered this, this diamond field in the middle of the area that we have just recently surveyed. And we're going to look like total dorks if, if this is true. Because if we surveyed all this land and there was uh, uh, you know, millions of dollars of diamond riches and we didn't even notice them, like Congress is going to come down on us and the money they spent on this survey – 
like this a is, ton of this diamonds. This is very unlucky. They, they, they happened to run across the one person in America most motivated to right. disprove this. So King and Emmons and their cartographer, Wilson, immediately um, kind of drop everything and head out to this corner of Wyoming. Janin did not reveal the location of the mine, and the location of the mine is still secret, but Emmons and King know the land really well because they had just surveyed it. And so the clues that Janin had dropped about, you know, this conical-shaped mountain and how far it was from this and that and the things he'd seen, King was able to really basically know exactly where he was talking, you know, what, where he was describing. And they head out, and it's in, it's in the late autumn, and this is, you know, you've been to Utah. You know how cold it is in October. It's freezing cold, but they get out there on this mule train and without too much difficulty, they find this acre. Huh. Not a secret anymore. And they walk, you know, they walk into it and, you know, right away they start finding diamonds. And they're just as excited as anybody. And they're running around like, oh my God, you know, the West, like it's a diamond, you know, it's a diamond super fest. We love the West, they would say. But it doesn't take them long to realize a couple of things. And one of the main things is that, well, Ge- just you just dig and well that, but also geologically, diamonds don't appear in nature with garnets, rubies, and sapphires. That was my main issue. They're made they're they're made by different processes, and they're not just scattered amongst one another. That seems just like overreaching from the start. If they yeah. had just stuck to diamonds. Well, as somebody in a contemporary newspaper account says, why didn't they put pearls out there too while they were <laughs> at it? Which is a pretty good diss. But they do immediately dig a trench and discover that all of the gems are just right on the surface. I can't There's, believe no one's done this yet. Well, right. And that's what Janin should have done. That's what, but they were all bamboozled. Uh, and so. You want to believe, I guess. They're out there, you know, disproving this. And at that point, a guy uh, kind of clop, 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 clops up with a little wagon train himself. And he says, hey, fellows, have you found any diamonds? And uh, King and his group are like, uh, somebody in the group like blurts it out. No, it was all a fake. Well, this guy, J.F. Barry, was an Eastern uh, dandy and diamond kind of... uh, Diamond fancier. Diamond stick pin owner. Who had, you know, gotten wind of this, uh, had gotten wind that King was headed out on this expedition and just followed him. Wow. Got on the same train, watched him, and then kind of, you know, stayed back as they trotted out, not thinking that they were being followed. Probably is hard to tail somebody in, you know, 1870s Wyoming. But, you know, he just stayed one hill back and was looking at him out of his, like, brass spy scope. Who are these guys? And so Barry, getting this secret knowledge uh, that it's all a ruse, Barry kind of lets let slip. He says, wow, this would be a good time to go short that stock. <laughs> and so King realizes, oh, you know, King, King's an, this ethical guy. Like he says, oh, you know, we got to get back to San Francisco and and reveal this hoax before Barry gets back to... Uh, you know, to make a fortune on the inside knowledge. Wow. And so they leave in the middle of the night. They race back to get on the train. They head back to San Francisco and they reveal the hoax to the whole 
assembled cast. It's very, you know, initially hard to convince them. Janin is humiliated because he's this expert mining engineer. Who didn't uh, dig a trench. Who didn't dig a trench. By this point, Philip Arnold, with $450,000 of uh, profit from this whole thing, has returned to Kentucky and is living on a farm and is just, um, you know, sort of chortling. He got out at the right time. He he knew that the stock was yeah. going to be found to be valueless pretty quick. John Slack completely disappeared. And uh, the bottom, and Tiffany is humiliated. Um, the whole thing throw, you know, kind of the, the, of course the, the rich bankers survive to bank another day, <laughs> but the, um, the, the story gets out because King, you know, has this enormous press conference and this becomes like the greatest story in the newspapers of the day. All the reporters, all of the, the people can't get enough of these guys getting their comeuppance. It's a real, it's a real hilarious tale. But Arnold is never held accountable. Uh, the guy who actually did the con, he's, you know, everyone knows where he is and nobody bothers. He's chased. Charges. He's, a, you know, he's, um, there's just never a, uh, there's never a successful prosecution. I think part of it is that the duped parties are so embarrassed. Right. They don't want it in the headlines again. Uh, and so Arnold ends up being a kind of successful farmer and banker in Kentucky, starts his own bank. Well, $400,000 would go a long way back then. But he ends up getting shot by somebody in a duel. Oh. And although doesn't die of the, uh, the wound, he dies of some subsequent infection as a result of the It's wound. not just vaccines. Like living back then, you could just get in a duel at any second. Yeah. I would never go to a party. No, me either, right? Once you've stolen $450,000, I moved to Paris. Think about what Paris is doing in 1875. You could drink absinthe. You could, you know. Yeah, what's he doing in Kentucky? Yeah, Kentucky he of just all prefer, the places. He just prefers bourbon to absinthe, I guess. The desire to... To uh, reform the mining laws of the West has continued unto this day. Um, just in recent years, legislation has been advanced in Congress to um, to again think of the mineral rights of the West as collectively owned. Billions and billions of dollars have been extracted from mines and um you know, for surface mines, from from uh, strip mines, from hard rock mines, and none of that money has been even reasonably taxed, let alone any percentage of it retained by the people of these United States. In 2007, uh, a Mining and Reclamation Act died in Congress that proposed there be a Four percent tax on uh, on extracted minerals um, in two thousand. Go ahead. Do other countries do this differently? Do you think? Like, is it is it is there more of a sense that it's some kind of national uh, uh, patrimony? You know, there aren't that many. You know, it's not like the UK, as you said at the beginning of this episode, has yeah. great mineral rights or vast or, public uh, lands. Yeah, right. So this is kind of a, if not a uniquely American problem, that the idea that the West is still fairly new 
enables us to think of it. I mean, this is this is a this is a contemporary problem with ranching. I'm and, just going to assume that Canada does it right, and I it looks to me like mineral rights are uh, are not owned by property owners. But the, the province actually has a lot more legal sway over anything under the ground. This came up in the the oil rush in Alaska in the 1960s. Um, there was there was a, an argument to be made that the oil wealth of Alaska should be owned by the people of Alaska and extracted by the state of Alaska, and that's how oil in Norway sure is. All these, uh, all these countries have nationalized their right oil industry, but instead. What happened in Alaska was they give gave away the oil leases to the highest bidder, which not surprisingly was Arco, British Petroleum, Exxon, all of our all of our best friends. It's gotta be I mean, in the short term, it's uh you know, that's that's good for the state budget, I guess, in the short term. But uh there was another mining and reclamation act proposed in two thousand nine, died in Congress, uh in two thousand fourteen, died in Congress. In 2015, two different mining acts were proposed, both died in Congress. And uh, most recently in 2019, um, a proposal to tax the mining industry died in Congress. I assume there's a lot of lobbying against these laws because there's, you know, the the pockets of the people who would oppose them are very deep. You would assume correctly. Hmm. But mining hoaxes also survive to this day. Um, just recently, a Canadian mining company by the name of Bree X claimed to have discovered a very wealthy uh, load of gold in Borneo, and uh, and their their penny stock went up to two hundred eighty six dollars um, because they kept producing these core samples that were just full of gold, uh, and it was only after. Uh, some there, there was a you know a, a dead body with its head chopped off found out, and you know there was like some intrigue in the jungle, and uh, people started analyzing these core samples and found that the gold that was in the core samples, some of it seemed to come from jewelry, old jewelry that had been mashed up with a hammer, uh, and that was a recent scam. But as recently as two weeks ago, no, last week. June 12th, 2021, and I'm giving away when this episode of Omnibus is being recorded. This is hot-breaking Great Diamond Hoax news. In KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, uh-huh. um, there was, in the last week, a giant diamond rush where uh, an area of, of uh, just a few hundred acres was discovered to have what appeared to be diamonds scattered all over the ground. And thousands of people rushed to this area. There's a, there's a recent picture of, of um, you know, this plot of land where there are people standing shoulder to shoulder, digging holes in the ground to, uh, to mine these diamonds. And after a week of like total mining frenzy, uh, people realized that it was just quartz, <laughs> that it was just like some clear... So it, it, it wasn't planted. This was more like a nope. fool's gold scenario. This was just a fool's gold In this scenario. case, nature is the con artist. Yeah. And the government there is now trying to convince people like, please don't go there. You're, you're, you're kind of screwing up the ground. The cattle are going to twist their ankle and all these holes you're digging. Um, but the, you know, the, uh, and, and, you know, and it's a 
kind of a tragedy there because these are all desperately poor people that are that were hoping to have another one of these mineral strikes in That's Africa. True. I like it better when it's Tiffany and some banker with a diamond stick pin who's uh who's believing the con. I don't I'm not in favor of this one. And that concludes the Great Diamond Hoax. Entry 548.MT1344, certificate number 52348, in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, as always, uh, as products of our time, uh, we were uh, available on social media and encouraged uh, listeners to find us at Omnibus Project, uh, at Ken Jennings on Twitter, in my case. John, you can find on his Patreon, patreon.com slash John Roderick. Uh, the show, importantly, had its own uh, Patreon, which is really the only reason why it still exists. Well, having, I mean, we would just go back to what we were doing before, which is saying all this stuff to each other at taco restaurants. That's right. So the Great Diamond hoax, huh? <laughs> it probably would have been shorter. Oh, yeah, right. Well, we have other things to talk yeah, about. Yeah. You and know. if nobody's paying us, after about 40 minutes, I'd probably be like, you know, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to look at my phone for a while. I'm, I, I'm, I got to get home. Can confirm. Uh, but, um, you know, thanks to the generosity and support of our Patreon uh, donors, the show now no longer needs uh, an evil corporation to stay alive. Thank you. We can be our own evil corporation. Thank you, Patreon. Um, if you have considered, uh, if your conscience is pricking you for not having proactively become a Patreon supporter, you should check it out. There are... Uh, copious prizes and perks available to those who support. Um, if you're looking for other like-minded uh, supporters, the Futurelings on uh, Facebook, also on Reddit or Discord, are uh, an option for you to have your own. Why should we be your only parasocial relationship? You don't want to have only two fake friends. Have hundreds. Go to the Futurelings. Right, right. Futurelings are where it's happening. Uh, you can send us You could send us email at the early 21st century at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can send us physical items to our post office box, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Today we have a note from J- uh, Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy. Jeremy Did Jeremy is, spoke, uh, speak in class Jeremy today? Jeremy spoke in our P.O. Box today. Well, this is very confusing. There are three items. One is uh, Bob Euchre's memoir. <laughs> that is confusing. One is a sealed envelope that reads. Oh wait, there's something. There's something tucked project. into the Bob Euchre. Yeah, there's a there's a post-it marking a uh, a certain uh, sports card photo. Is it a code? Is this telling us maybe. that the aliens are coming? If the, the aliens maybe want us to know that Bob Euchre is not left-handed, but he uh, posed as such on a tops card once to prank. The venerable baseball card company. Here, I'm opening up the note from uh, Jeremy. Oh, did we talk about? Did we talk about like baseball card errors at some point? That seems um, like a Ken show. Uh, one. So one is a copy of Bob Euchre's where he's goofing on baseball he's, cards. He's, no, he's batting left-handed, even though he actually was a righty. The other is an envelope that says "Warning: Profanity Enclosed." Right. And I was—I don't even should up. Should we even be opening this on the air? I don't oh, want—I don't want the FCC to. It is, in fact, the famous Bill Ripken Fleer card. Have you ever seen this? Uh-uh. Where nobody noticed what had been written on the end of his bat. 
Have you never seen this card? <laughs> did he know? Is that is that him uh, uh, making the joke, or did somebody prank him? I feel like I've never heard the story. I feel it like says, Bill, I feel it, like Billy Ripken knew. It says the 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 first word is the F word. <gasps> it says F face. Yeah. So you would call somebody an F face, and it says that on the end of his bat. Bat. You think he knew, and nobody noticed. Uh, I've you know I've never read a thirty thousand word oral history of the <laughs> Billy Ripken F face card. So do you think that this card is worth money? It's from nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, it is, and there were I think there were several um, updated Flair made uh, new editions that you know either whited or blacked out the uh, the offending mm-hmm. that end. So is this like the Beatles uh, like butcher cover? I guess when there was when there was a big secondary market for baseball cards this one really took off and now its value has kind of collapsed um now that the market has kind of collapsed the value of the f-face card went with it here's an interview that billy ripkin gave in 2008 where he really does not enjoy the legacy oh he says he didn't know he says he was targeted by teammates Lol. I know I'm kind of a jerk at times, but that was going too far. So it was a prank because he was not popular in the clubhouse. Lol. Interesting. Well, that goes to show, be popular in the clubhouse. He does not enjoy now, decades later, being remembered as the F-face guy. So let's all go back to remembering him as Cal Ripken Jr.'s less talented (laughs) brother, please. (laughs) Thank you, uh, Jeremy. Thank you for these two... uh, these two intentional errors on baseball cards. We appreciate these artifacts. Again, you can send your own. Uh, please include a profanity warning if you send anything PG thirteen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But do send it to PO Box five five seven four four Shoreline Washington nine eight one five five. I'm gonna uh, start reading hilarious Bob Euchre stories while you finish the show. John. That does seem like something you would do. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.